everybody. Stephanie Ruper here. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take the deepest dive possible into what it means to be human. Today is episode number 43, and I have on Professor Bron Taylor, who's a specialist in the relationship between religions and environmental concern. So Professor Taylor Braun was one of my first exposures to the world of what is known in the academy as religious naturalism. And religious naturalism is something I've talked about a few times on the podcast here. I had on Ursula Goodenough, who's a leader in the movement, a few episodes back now, I think about eight episodes back. Um, and I've had on uh, Donald Crosby, who was is also a big member in that movement, Michael Hogue, uh, and um, Eric Steinhardt way back at the beginning of this podcast. So anyway, I've had a number of guests on in or tangential to or interested in religious naturalism, which is basically looking at the importance of well, it looks at a lot of things. It looks at the importance of uh, a religious feeling for environmental concern. That's one of the things. So uh, Professor Taylor's role in all of this is, uh, is to actually look at what's happening in religion today, what's happening in religion around the world, and to assess is this religion, is that religion affiliated with environmental concern? Does it care? Does it not care? What about it makes it pro-environment and what about it makes it less good at being pro-environment? You know, And so um, his articles are full of interesting information about prayer. You know, Does belief in prayer make it harder for you to care about the environment or belief in heaven? or belief in God's agency over your own? As it turns out, the answer to all these questions is yes, it, act, it actually does. Uh, and so something we talk about today for a little while is like the question of, okay, it seems as though on a whole, religions tend to hold people back or be at least associated with people holding back from caring about the environment. And the, you know, why? That's a huge question, Why? And we talk about that in our chat today, and we talk about uh, what else it is in society. You know, what is it that makes people care about the environment? And how do you do that? As it turns out, it seems as though art might be one of our best responses you know, to the question of how do we how do we transform the world uh, into something that is sustainable and long-lasting and in a positive relationship with nature? So uh, do uh, do get hype because it's a really exciting episode. I'll read you a little bit about uh, Professor Taylor. He is an American scholar and conservationist. He's professor of religion and nature at the University of Florida and has also been an affiliated scholar with the Center for Environment and Development at the University of Oslo. Taylor works principally in the areas of religion and ecology, environmental ethics, and environmental philosophy. He's also a prominent historian and ethnographer of environmentalism and especially radical environmentalist movements, surfing culture, and nature-based spiritualities. Taylor is also editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Religion and Nature and subsequently founded the International Society for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, serving as its president from 2006 to 2009 something in which I am a member. He also founded the Society's Affiliated Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, serving as its editor since 2007. He's the author of seven, several um, books, all of which I, I think, <laughs> I seem to recall, are quite accessible uh, for you know everyday reading. If you're interested, so you can check that out at Bron Taylor, B-R-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. I'll link to it in the show notes, dot com. Uh, yes, so that's all very exciting. And you know where to find me at Stephanie Ruper on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, or Stephanie at nakedhumanity.org. So thank you very much. Here we are with Professor Braun Taylor. Welcome, Braun. Nice to be here. Yeah, I. it is actually, as I was just telling my audience, uh, it's quite uh, it's quite exciting and quite an honor to talk to you face-to-face because um, your book about dark green religion was uh, one of my first introductions to the field that I'm now in, and I thought it was fantastic then. I still think it's fantastic, which is good. Um, so thank you. Nice of you to say so. Nice of you to say so. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Just being honest. Um, so could we start out? Can you just tell us a little bit about, um, 
what you work on, the questions, um, and why. Sure. Well, I got interested in the in religion and politics uh, in college. Uh, I noticed and had classes that were focused on Latin American, what are called Latin American liberation movements that were informed by um, the fusion of Christian social ethics and kind of radical politics. And at the time, uh, indeed, some priests and others were even taking up arms against despotic uh, and plutocratic regimes in uh, Latin America and elsewhere. Um, Liberation theology was also uh, an important part of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. And of course, uh, religion was a very important factor in the uh, civil rights movement in the United States, whether it was Malcolm X or Martin King or a host of others. Um, Religion was this kind of resource for promoting dramatic, uh, Mm. even sometimes radical social change. So I was, uh, for my own idiosyncratic reasons, I suppose, uh, moved by those movements, interested in them. And uh, thought, well, uh, since religion seems to be entangled with these sorts of causes, uh, maybe it can be a wellspring for some of the kinds of social changes that I was also interested in as a kind of activist and uh, emerging, you know, scholar, intellectual. Um, As I was wrapping up my PhD at the University of Southern California, and I was actually doing a... uh, a dissertation, which eventually became a book on affirmative action policy, I began to notice that there were radicals uh, who were sabotaging um, the hunting of uh, bighorn sheep on the east side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Hmm. And they also were blockading um, a motorcycle race, the Barstow to Las Vegas desert race, trying to prevent people from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of motorcyclists from rampaging across the deserts. And they were arguing that these were places with many living things, some of whom are imperiled and that human beings have no right to exterminate other species or put them at risk. And what I knew about the liberation theology movements is that they were, to use today's jargon, they they were very anthropocentric. Uh, They were focused on human well-being. And as someone who's working for the Park Service and uh, was privileged to spend some of my youth tramping in wild places, I always felt like something was missing Mm. from those movements that otherwise I uh, felt some affinity with. So when I began to notice that there were activists who were um, challenging um, um, our kind of headlong rush toward the extermination of other species. I, my curiosity perked up and I began to seek out some of the sources and it didn't take long to realize that there was something spiritual going on there. Mm. Um, And so as I was wrapping up the affirmative action work, as it happened, uh, and to my shock, uh, I got a job post uh, finishing my PhD at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and someone had invited Dave Foreman, one of the co-founders of Earth First and the kind of best known, the most, uh, I guess, charismatic in the sense of uh, really good on the stump, um, that had scheduled Dave to give a a lecture at at my campus. So I, by this time I had been reading movement literature and thinking maybe I would do some research on this group. And um, so he shows up, I arranged to introduce him and drive him around. And I had him and uh, who uh, the the folks I'm usingly call the feral ones come in from the, uh, who had come to hear him from the, nearby states and from Wisconsin and it was and I interviewed him then for my uh, first of a number of times and it was immediately clear that I wanted to uh, study that movement Um, not just uh, kind of as a dispassionate scholar but also because 
in my program back then, nobody was talking about environmental ethics, at least at the University of Southern California, except Christopher Stone, who I didn't even know was there and didn't even know who he was at the time, the guy who wrote, Should Trees Have Standing? Um, but nobody pushed me in that direction in my uh, social ethics program. So I wanted to uh, have an opportunity to kind of work out the environmental dimensions of my social ethics interests. And I thought there's no better way to do that than from in the midst of social struggles rather than from an ivory tower. So immediately thereafter, within, I think, 60 days, I went to my first uh, radical environmental meeting in the woods and uh, discovered that uh, indeed, there was a kind of a deep nature spirituality that was animating these people. Hmm. Um, what I came to call these sorts of spiritualities of belonging and connection to nature. And they were expressed in all sorts of ways. And, and, and so there's both this deep emotional dimension to it, but there was also a cognitive dimension. There were all kinds of claims being made. There were um, ecological claims being made, which at the time I didn't know whether, um, they were warranted, for example, that humans were precipitating a massive extinction event. Well, I knew there were problems, but I didn't necessarily assume that their rather apocalyptic view of what humans were doing to the planet were accurate. They were making ethical claims that the entire natural world has value apart from its usefulness to human beings. And that notion of uh, what we sometimes call intrinsic or inherent value um, was not something that was prevalent in the ethical literature that I had been reading, but was being advanced by people like uh, Arnie Nass. And at least in hindsight, you can look back in environmental history and you can find all sorts of figures uh, who I've now written about in the Dark Green Religion book and elsewhere who, are, who have been articulating those kinds of feelings uh, and uh, ethical claims. So there was this ethical claim. And obviously, if you if all living things have inherent worth, a right to exist, a right to evolve and to, to flourish, uh, and humans are creating a massive extinction event, then there's a huge gap between what ought to be and what is. So how do we bridge that? Well, we bridge that, of course, through, because humans are moral agents, we bridge that through action. Uh, and that action can be individual and it can be political. And I think it's quite obvious if it's to be adequate, it has to have not just an individual dimension, but it has to have a political dimension. It must deal with the social systems. Um, so the, the movement, I sometimes say, has been my, mute, my foremost muse uh, in my career, really. And not just the, the movement in North America, but really looking at ecological resistance movements around the world. I think, you know, I did a book called Ecological Resistance Movements that was my second book. Um, and in that book, I was wondering, well, what sorts of continuities and discontinuities are there between the movements that I'm exploring in depth in North America and other ecologized social movements around the world? And we found some very interesting continuities and discontinuities. Not all of them were advancing a kind of intrinsic value theory, um, but, but but quite a number of them were in their own ways. And, and yet what was more common about these things in the global context was the effort to protect commons regimes where they uh, had not been destroyed uh, and restore them where they uh, had been destroyed. And in a kind of modern way, the movements toward national parks and other protective reserves is a, is a way to try to establish commons regimes. In other words, uh, to protect areas that are collectively managed in some way, right? Because those, that's what commons regimes do. Uh, there are social mores that evolve over time that sort of tell people what the appropriate kinds of behaviors are. So that was the start uh, of wondering about what are the possibilities for uh, nature-related spiritualities of various sorts to galvanize and mobilize pro-environmental behavior. Mm. And of course, those folks tended to be very critical of Western religions and philosophies, viewing them as inherently 
uh, as promoting negative environmental attitudes and behaviors. And this has become kind of a truism in environmental thought. In fact, one of the most uh, widely cited uh, essays in the whole area of environmental uh, and nature is this one by Lynn White Jr. in which he basically argued that to generalize quite a bit in our short time here, but the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, he didn't really even talk about Islam. He was focused on Christianity, but the themes he was targeting are endemic, are native to all three of those religions. And he said that they're the most deeply anthropocentric or human-centered religions around, which leads to a kind of indifference and sometimes even an antipathy toward uh, wild nature especially um can we uh can we dive into that a little bit more can uh can you elaborate on um the accuracy of that kind of claim and and what is it about um these religions that either make it seem like they're bad for the environment or actually are yeah well um of course this has been roundly debated and the responses to white have uh been several. On the one hand, you have, uh, I think in the, the, to speak generally in environmental studies, his thesis has to a significant extent been uh, accepted, almost too easily accepted. There's been a pushback by people from these traditions that contend that if that properly understood these traditions enjoying uh, a responsibility to be good environmental stewards. And they can go back and they can look at certain themes and texts in the tradition, such as, you know, God declaring the world is good upon the creation. Um, They like to talk about the Noah story where uh, God made sure that all the, at least the animals get on the ark. Of course, they don't want to talk about that. He didn't say anything about the plants. Um, And uh, so there was a kind of apologetic, nature to some of the responses that basically was saying not guilty if you understand the tradition properly. And then there were other more complex responses from people in those traditions or scholars of them that said, well, these traditions are ambivalent. They have some themes that can be interpreted in pro-environmental ways. They have other themes that that seem to work against or hinder pro-environmental understandings and behaviors. Um, That third approach is, uh, historically and sociologically more accurate. Of course. Um, we, but now we've also done significant uh, social scientific research exploring the relationships between religions and environmental behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here I'm talking about the so-called world religions in general, not just the Abrahamic ones, which means, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, generally speaking, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, um, Hinduism, you know, these sorts of uh, the the religions that originated originally in Asia. And when we look carefully at these traditions, uh, we find more themes that seem to occlude or hinder environmental understandings, concern and behavior than we find pro-environmental ones. Mm, Wait, so to be clear, generally speaking, you're saying that across religions, it tends to actually what was the word used? Hinder environmental um, health yeah. then. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And there's, we do tend to have a misconception that some religions in the East might be more environmentally friendly. Is that correct? Yes. And indeed, Lin White himself had argued that Buddhism is a more uh, sort of naturally eco-friendly religion than Christianity. But then he said, well, of course, Westerners, and he's writing in 1968, Westerners are not likely to adopt these Asian religions because, well, they're Westerners. So where in the West can we find resources for environmental concern and action? And he said, well, we can find it in St. Francis of Assisi. And he recommended uh, St. Francis of Assisi should become the, the patron saint for ecologists. Interesting. Well, interesting indeed, because uh, I forget exactly, but I think within two decades, uh, Pope John Paul II, if memory serves, declared St. Francis as the patron saint for ecologists. Wow. And, uh, and then just, uh, of course, with Pope Francis, the first, 
we have the first pope that took Francis as his papal name, and he did so in part because he wanted to uh, foreground the need for uh, what uh, green Christians are calling creation care increasingly today. Mm. And there's just no doubt that he is very sincere in this. He, uh, Pope Francis I, uh, he issued a, a very thoughtful encyclical promoting the idea that Christians should be ardently concerned for the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, what we haven't seen is a tremendous wellspring of response to that. Now, it's still pretty, you know, social change takes a while. Uh, I think the confluence of increasing concern and alarm about anthropogenic or human-caused climate change uh, will combine with those exhortations from religious elites to at least nudge some people from these traditions in a more environmentally friendly direction. But what we're not seeing with any of the world's religions is proportions of people who are ardently religious being as or more concerned uh, and active pro-environmentally than people who are not from those traditions but are otherwise similar culturally, demographically, educationally, and so forth. So if we were really, if if we were to analyze whether a religion or a uh, a, a subset of religion. Of course, there's these big umbrella religions and there's subsets within them. Some are greener than others. But if we were to look at them as a whole, or even if we look at them severally, um, we would, ex- if, if they were exercising moral leadership in the world, we would expect their devotees to be proportionally more environmentally engaged than less. Mm. And we don't when we speak of them as a whole, we don't find that they are more environmentally engaged, that in fact, they're not leading as they have in some other cases, like the civil rights movement in North America. Of course, they didn't initially lead. <laughs> and there were in North America, and there were many who were opposed to civil rights from the religious communities. But once they got on board, they were decisive, positive players in the civil rights movement in North America, right? So, we ought not to say, well, uh, I, generally speaking, most of them are still playing catch up when it comes to can they can they be as pro green as uh, the publics at large. Now, there are sects within them or subsets within them. So, for example, uh, Unitarians, uh, some of the liberal Christian churches like the UCC, United Church of Christ, and the Episcopalians, they tend to be uh, modestly more pro-environmental than Christians from other denominations, for example. And interestingly, uh, non-white Hispanics tend to be, uh, who are Catholic, tend to be more pro-green than uh, white Catholics. Uh, Hispanic or not. So we're getting some very interesting data about this, and we can theorize this in a number of ways, which we won't have time to get into today, I don't think. Um, But part of what we're realizing is that there are political ideologies uh, are oftentimes far more decisive and influential on the, uh, the way people think and feel about these things than their religious traditions. And we all know that, pe- that there are a lot of people in religious traditions they are kind of tangentially there. You know, they're there for cultural reasons, familial reasons, but um, a lot of them don't really know their traditions all that well. And then there's all these other reasons why, uh, I mean, you could imagine if you're a pastor in a church and in a, even before, for example, in America, we got so polarized, right? But if you are in a church and your parishioners are politically uh, diverse, it can be very risky to come out strongly in any political direction, including a green political direction. So we also see that through social scientific research, how reluctant religious leaders are uh, to act at the grassroots to push their congregations in a direction. So what we find is some very well-written and thoughtful statements from the intelligentsia of these traditions uh, or subsets within them 
Um, but at the grassroots, we don't see that kind of upwelling. So this also plays into, well, where is the, where is the, the real uh, mobilization coming from? And this is where I think the field work that I've done and others uh, and other research has complemented that field work. And we're also doing some survey research now that tries to get at what I call dark green religion. These themes that seem to correlate highly with uh, pro environmental attitudes and behaviors. So it looks like the argument that I was making based uh, more on the historic record and on ethnographic research from around the world uh, it's, it appears as though from early research where we've been testing the, uh, my dark green religion scale, that indeed it does, those sorts of themes do t tend to correlate uh, strongly with pro-environmental attitudes and behaviors. Now, you, um, something that you, you wrote really uh, caught my eye, and I, I wrote it down, and I was like, I'm going to have to cite that eventually, um, because I think there's also this element that um, is sort of universal about humans, which is that religions are part of the maintenance of our day-to-day -day lives. And so there's almost more like inertia in them than there might be else, you know, in other parts of our lives because religion just sort of is there to, like, in a sense, uh, take care. You said, uh, why do we have more priests than prophets? Well, because people have day-to-day -day lives, you know, and, and so the prophets to me sound like they might be this intelligentsia that you mentioned, right? The people who are sort of um, boldly announcing what needs to be changed, but the priests are people who are sort of just like, you know, go doing performing funerals and weddings and, and Sunday services. And so it, right. it, it's not so activist um, in that sense. And maybe that's a part of why it's different from the social movements and the civil rights movements is because those were also a part of like taking care of people. It's harder to get people to take care of something that is distant from right. them, like the environment. Absolutely. Well, you know, someone who becomes a pastor, one would hope is a compassionate person who wants to help people through um, the difficult parts of their lives, as well as help them to celebrate the beautiful parts and at the end of life to celebrate the life as a whole, right? So these folks, generally speaking, um, it's kind of a different personality than a prophet. And we should remember the prophets generally, as uh, Jesus himself said, they're without honor in their own home. Uh, in other words, they tend to be despised because what do prophets do? They, well, you, you know the expression call out culture, right? Call-out culture can be very politically counterproductive because who likes to get called out mm. um, to be told they're bad or they're acting badly? Uh, so it takes a certain kind of fortitude to be the kind of person that challenges the status quo. And those are always a, a, a in the minority. And if you talk to people who are trying to move their traditions in a green direction and you, you get them in a candidate situation where they're not um, worried about offending someone, you know, just how's it like when I talk to these people, I just sort of ask them, how's it going? And what you hear is, is frustration and sorrow about how hard it is to move their own people in these sorts of directions. And that's, uh, I've had those kinds of conversations with people from a wide variety of religious traditions. Uh, now I forgot the exact seg beginning of that question, but I, I spoke to some of it. Maybe there was something else I should have spoken to. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I really appreciate that. So we're sort of looking at this uh, picture of religions, which can some, but do sometimes hold uh, space for these prophets and are yoked to attempting to lead better lives, but they but they have this have this inertia. Now, are there um, what are like some other things in our lives? Like we talked about politics, or like when people don't affiliate with a religion. What is it about um, stepping outside of that religious space that makes it more? easy or natural or something, right, for people to enact environmental ethics? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I think that 
I might flip that coin over a little bit. Um, I, I think that a lot of people drift from these traditions because they have environmental concerns and they just feel like they're getting nowhere with them within those traditions, that they can mm-hmm. more effectively care about these issues and promote these issues that they care about from outside. I think this is, it is also the case that the more environmentally concerned one gets, there's a tendency to become better acquainted with environmental science. Mm. And when one does that, one learns about evolution. And when one learns about evolution, there one learns alternative understandings for the uh, diversity and indeed the beautiful, uh, complex living systems on the planet. Mm. And that alternative explanation, although it is possible to hybridize an evolutionary understanding with conventional religious thought, sure. generally speaking, once you begin that, there is a tension. Because on the one hand, you have some sort of divine creative force behind the universe. And the other, you have the possibility of... Um, you know, a cosmogony, a story of how the world came to be the way it is that doesn't rely on a divine creative force. Sure. And some people just over time find uh, that an, an entirely naturalistic understanding of how the universe came to be and how uh, Earth came to form and how life emerged and, uh, and diversified here, a more compelling cosmology, a more co- compelling cosmogony than their religions. And so they just start to feel um, out of place in those traditions. I mean, that's, you know, to be honest, that's in my story as well. So this is why so many people uh, now uh, might, might say, well, they have a deep spiritual connection to nature, but they're not conventionally religious. And that's where I think a lot of people who fit this kind of dark green religion uh, uh, trope or understanding fit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think there has been research done, maybe you were the one who did it and, uh, whether learning certain facts or learning about science or whatever is enough to motivate people to um, have environmental concern or, you know, you're often talking about this like deeper spiritual motivation. And it seems to me from talking with you and some other people on this podcast that it really does take <clears throat> like a very deeply embedded, maybe even sacred um, relationship with nature to actually get people to consistently care about and enact environmental you know, behaviors because some people can do them for a short while if they watch a video with a polar bear you know, swimming, drowning, you might care for a little while, but it seems as though maybe you need not just to like know the fact of this, but to have some sort of like deeper emotional or long-term relational like commitment. Yeah. You know, I've certainly interviewed people for whom scientific understandings were their pathway to great environmental concern and action. Mm. Um, There are certainly people who through scientific inquiry, develop a deep kind of awe and wonder at the mysteries and beauties of the universe and the biosphere. Um, So science itself, for some, is a kind of emotional pathway to these spiritualities of belonging and connection to nature, that affective experience that is so prevalent within green countercultures around the world. But there's another part that that's also very prevalent and it's, it's kind of one's relationship to uh, non-human organisms. And sometimes that comes through uh, one's relationship with uh, companion animals, domesticated animals or uh, companion animals or domesticated animals. So I've run into to no small number of uh, activists, ardent activists who grew up on farms and realized that uh, there's agency, intelligence, uh, and have found friendships with the farm animals that they were raising. Some of these folks ended up leaving that kind of life because they didn't want to be uh, raising such animals to kill and eat them. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, one of the kind of, if you want to think about 
this in terms of a kind of a spiritual epistemology. Uh, the most prevalent spiritual epistemology of, of environmentalism in general is that if you, uh, that spending time in relatively intact biological systems is the fastest pathway to concern and caring for these places. Now, I mean, you just find exhortations all over in that regard. And as people become increasingly concerned and, and sometimes depressed about the current state of the planet, we increasingly find kind of green spiritual exhortations to get out there or people are orchestrating healing events that involve uh, some sort of meditative practice in, uh, again, relatively intact biological systems. Now, the, the, the difficulty for greens is that humans are increasingly urbanized and spending more and more time uh, looking at gizmos. Um, and so if that spiritual, if there's something accurate about that spiritual epistemology as a pathway to concern and action, then if people are increasingly technologized and urbanized, um, are we doomed <laughs> as a species in terms of enough of us caring to make an, a difference? And I think there's, uh, that's a legitimate concern. This is, I think, in part why so many people are using the arts in various forms to try to awaken and evoke ethical, uh, kind of spiritual connections and ethical concerns for the natural world. Uh, and we just see a, a proliferation of that from um, the, well, I've written a, a book, uh, edited a book on Avatar. Um, that's just one example of, of a film that takes quite a radical uh, analysis. I mean, as is common in green subcultures, there tends to be um, an appreciation for the extent to which indigenous people often develop cultures, spiritualities, and mores that are sustainable long-term and other small-scale societies. Now, we don't want to get romantic about it. We don't want to essentialize and say they're all, you know, groovy green uh, societies because that's not in fact the case. Right. But one of the things we do find through the social scientific literature is that there is a ten there's a greater tendency among such societies to develop mores and life ways and so forth that are ecologically beneficent than in large scale societies dominated by the so-called world religions. All right. So uh, Cameron was expressing that very common environmental theme in Avatar, right? Uh, while at the same time trying to call people to revolution, <laughs> really, uh, metaphorically, to defend uh, uh, a world understood as sacred by the Navi. And as, as he puts it himself, he, on the one hand, he's an avowed right, uh, atheist. On the other hand, he is... Um, he uses religious terminology to, to talk about the miracle and, and uh, uh, rep, the miracle of life and the reverence we should have for it. Uh, and he wants to use the, quote, magic of cinema to bring people affectively and emotionally into that experience. Right. OK, so most people can't go to the Amazon. Right. But if you can give them a feeling of the beauty of. Uh, of a forest through cinema. Uh, you might inspire pro-environmental behavior. And indeed, the book looks social scientifically at avatar fandoms um, and how they, uh, people are very moved by this. And some say, I, you know, I just made me want to go to the forest and defend the forest so forth. So there's all this kind, there's some evidence that this was evocative. And I've talked to people who um, were moved to environmental concern by the Tolkien novels, all that Middle Earth stuff, you know, the ants rising up against the forces of destruction and doom. Um, and we could go on and on. A, a, a young black kid from Queens who told me that, who basically said the only trees he knew were on the periphery of the asphalt pavement where they played basketball as a child. But then he started watching Captain Planet, that Ted Turner cartoon. And he developed environmental concerns. Well, who knew? You know, so that artistic pathway. And that, I met him actually. Uh, he had gone to a, a, 
a college without a lot of black folks uh, in uh, the Northeast and was doing environmental studies. And he had never been to a forest until he joined the environmental club there. But he traced it back to Captain Planet. So there's these, there's some evidence that, uh, um, and we don't have great evidence, but there's at least anecdotal evidence for that for some music, cinema, uh, poetry, um, visual art of all sorts, photography, painting, um, can be a, a way to awaken uh, an appreciation for the beauty and fecundity of, of the earth. Of course, we can then theorize that too. I mean, if we're talking about uh, how do you mobilize green behavior, why is it that that worked, right? Well, uh, the great uh, environmental scientist started off as an entomologist, E.O. Wilson advanced an argument that's uh, known as the biophilia hypothesis. And that hypothesis is, to, to paraphrase it uh, simply, is that it is uh, human beings have a natural affinity for biologically intact ecosystems. Mm -hmm. They know intuitively, kind of deep down, that these are good places. These are places where they can flourish. Um, and he says that is a, a moral sentiment and a perception that is ecologically and socially adaptive. So it is a product of evolution. So if that's true, and I think it's a very plausible hypothesis, and there's some interesting research that buttresses it, then greens have quite a bit to work with, with the kind of emotional and cognitive infrastructure of every human being. So here we are in a world that's greatly polarized uh, among people of different political backgrounds and ethnicities and nationalities and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, what Green Thought attempts to uh, express and promote is that we are one species and we are a part of uh, complex interconnected systems. And indeed, even as a species, we are symbionts. I mean, we are full of other species that help to regulate our own system. And when you begin to have this, this sense of, you know, you are not just an individual ego. And of course, some of the religious traditions, uh, especially the mystical ones, have long taught this kind of thing, that you are not just a single independent ego. You are a part of these complex systems. Once you get to that kind of perspective, you tend to let go of your own um, sense of self-importance and even for many, the sense of the kind of self-importance of your own species is our species is the only thing that matters. And that's a pretty that's a pretty strong basis for getting uppity about environmental stuff. Yeah, I yeah, ab absolutely it is. I actually, there's a whole chapter on uh, Wilson and biophilia in my dissertation. Oh, um, great. Yeah, and uh, I, I, find it, uh, I find it quite a compelling idea. And I have read some of the environmental psychology work uh, that, that looks at the idea and, and tests its plausibility. I think it's really interesting because even though we do perhaps have an innate feeling or ability, maybe I would say ability to feel at home in nature mm -hmm. that won't actually be triggered unless you spend time in nature. And in fact, kids who spend time in urban environments, like the one you mentioned, um, might, can later on in life develop like these relationships. But also, I mean, I, how many people do we all know who grew up in urban environments and they're like, I hate camping, right? Don't take me outside because it's so unfamiliar and it's just, right. right? And so it's really just a question of like taking, how do you make this natural home actually feel like home when you live in a, you know, in a concrete a concrete landscape. And I think you're right. Art is probably the best way to do it. I mean, actually doing it and art, or maybe art is a really important segue so that once you get there, you're not totally freaked out by like mosquitoes, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and we're also seeing movements in, in urban centers to kind of bring green spaces into urban centers and bring community gardens into right. urban centers. And, and of course, in some places where there's been tremendous, uh, um, 
urban decay um, that has provided opportunities for creating green spaces. And um, one needn't uh, get to, to really wild places to develop an appreciation for, for life. You know, people do it in all sorts of ways. And uh, one of the things I do, because it's these are very depressing times for a green, is just you know, planting milkweed to try to help out the mm. monarchs. I mean, in some, some ways, you know, I can be doing all my academic stuff and feel like I'm just, uh, to put it crudely, pissing in the wind, but I can go out and I can, uh, I can plant some milkweed and, uh, and then I see the monarchs in my yard and the neighbors come around with all of their Versailles-like lawns. And, uh, but they, where do they go? They want to come and look in my yard because it's alive. There's all kinds of stuff there. There's all this things happening. Um, so you don't need a lot of space uh, to create wonder, you know, mm. and it can be, we can create wonder and appreciation everywhere in our backyards on that, the, you know, the, the little strip of, well, we can tear up pavement out in front of the brownstone, you know, and put in a little garden. So you, we're, we're finding a lot more movements like that. Um, around the world and people are, are changing codes so we can take out those lawns and put in native plants. Yeah. Um, which are, uh, you know, harbor a much wider variety of life. So there's a lot of things that are very interesting. The, 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 the efforts to transform food systems, for example, there's, so there's a lot of positive things going. The, the problem of course, is that the overall inertia remains powerful, uh, and uh, negative and the political systems are generally speaking so regressive, if not utterly corrupt, right. that we are unable to respond to the challenges before us, at least uh, anywhere near as aggressively as we need to, to avert um, calamity, to put it starkly yeah. accurately. Well, um <laughs> I had the feeling I was like, great, we're like talking about all these positive movements. We're going to end on a positive note. But I think it's also very important that we can end on a realistic note, which is the challenge is immense and the inertia is great. Um, and so like the, I don't know, I think, I think the act of, you know, the individual, you talked about the individual and the political earlier, like the mm -hmm. individual act of creating wonder, I think is beautiful. Have house plants and then show your guests and be like, look, isn't this one cool? And that could, that could actually be really important, you know, instead of, I don't know, um, I get into a ton of fights with, you know, people back home. I'm actually from Detroit, which is interesting. You mentioned urban decay. Oh. Yeah. But like, you know, I get into a ton of fights and you can throw statistics at people all day long, but in the end, like maybe for a lot of people, the the right way in, the best way in is wonder, you know, is sort of um, developing some sort of aesthetic, you know, some sort of artistic relationship with um, with nature, with creatures. So um, get some butterflies in your backyard or um, something. I am wondering before we wrap up, if you have anything um, that you would like to say anything left that you would like to say and also of course please let us know where we can find your books or website or materials and stuff right right well my uh to answer the last mm -hmm. question first well, just my name braun you can find uh you know information about the books and lovely articles and uh additional materials with the books that you can't put in a book like videos and uh other uh resources but um yeah, so there's a there's a good book. It's called Rare Earth by Brownlee and Ward, mm. and in it they argue that. And if you look at kind of astrobiology and so forth, it's likely that there the universe is so large. You know, it, it, it's there's a very good chance there's life elsewhere, but the requirements for complex multicellular life are very narrow, and they they argue that this could possibly be the only place in the known universe where such life exists, rare earth. And so when you realize, I mean, even if there's other places with complex multicellular life, uh, one thing we can know with reasonable certainty is that we're on that planet that has that. And if, if such life is not a miracle, I don't know what is. 
And if our ability to recognize that uh, and value that and reverence that isn't the greatest privilege in the universe, I don't know what is. Hmm. So there's a lot of talk about privileges, um, but we all share a great privilege and that is that we are complex multicellular organisms on this planet, which may be the only place where such life exists. And if we're too clueless to figure that out and protect and reverence it, then, you know, there's something seriously wrong with our species. And um, I hope we will uh, catch on uh, and uh, get especially politically active because we can every we, we certainly, and it's good for the mental health to do the small things and to try to uh, reduce our own impact. Um, individual uh, actions matter because insults to the biosphere are cumulative and protective and restorative actions are also cumulative in, in the opposite direction and all good. But if we don't, if we don't, change well to you know i'm not endorsing him by by borrowing from him but if we don't uh have a political revolution which is the the phrase that bernie sanders is using um and if we don't treat anthropogenic climate change as a climate emergency and there's there's very little time left and it might even be too late to to avert the uh you know, just extreme suffering as a result of that, an extreme reduction in the Earth's biocomplexity. We at least, if we appreciate the miracle of life and the privilege and responsibility that comes with being here and get uppity about the political systems that are driving all this and not responding to it, then we, you know, you could, you could argue we don't deserve to be here. Hmm. So I guess I would probably leave it there. <laughs> okay um that sounds good thank you um thank you so much for joining us and thank you everybody for um tuning in it is an honor and a privilege as um as always uh so uh, you know where to find me if you have any questions uh about the podcast or would like to uh take a screenshot of your review and email it to stephanie at nakedhumanity.org I, you know how to do that. You know how to find me on the social media platforms. Um, and I will link uh, to Bron's work in the show notes so you can more um, easily find him. So thank you all. And um, thank you again, uh, Bron. It's been really wonderful. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Take care. Okay, sure. Take care. Mm-hmm.